recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia on TalkShoe. Christogenia isn't really on TalkShoe anymore. It's really on Christogenia, and we simulcast on TalkShoe for the sake of keeping a more public face. More people are listening now on Christogenia streaming radio servers than are, list- than are listening on TalkShoe at any given program, which is good. Today is Friday, December 28th, 2012. Shouldn't take a rocket scientist to figure the year is almost over and 12, 21, 12 in the Mayan calendar went down the, went, went down the tubes and deservedly so. I received both encouragement and some criticism for the 2012 program conducted last Friday night. The encouragement outweighed the critics who could all go straight to the lake of fire for all that I care. Someone in Christian identity has to stand up and protest the frauds being perpetrated and the lies being told under the guise of Christian identity. And I'll get back to that topic momentarily. I want to publicly thank and praise Yahweh for all of the wonderful brethren who have supported my efforts at Christogenia.org throughout the year. Without them, Christogenia would not exist. I also want to thank all of the brethren who help my efforts in other ways, those who consistently link my websites and articles, in comments on mainstream media, and in forums, those who would make those who make YouTube videos out of my podcast, something that I really don't bother to do, but plenty of other people do. Praise Yahweh for them. And those who do other similar things, which thereby allow our message to reach many more people than I could do alone. Those efforts are also of great assistance to our common cause. Thank you all. This is our presentation of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, part 2. I have a long discourse before we begin with the actual Gospel. Last week, at the end of the first part of this presentation of Luke, chapter 23, we addressed what was seen as two ages-old Christian identity heresies, if I have to call them that both of which are really unnecessary innovations. A man of pride starts inventing inventing his own scripture. The first belongs, so far as I know, to Wesley Swift, unfortunately, because Wesley Swift gave us a lot of good work in many other ways. Wesley told a fantastic story about Barabbas called the Blue Tunic Army of Christ a story which is not substantiated in history and which is refuted by the words of gospel writers alone. Barabbas was a mere robber. He was not the great leader of some righteous army for God. The second heresy is the the misconception concerning Luke 23-34 where perhaps some well-meaning but poorly studied individuals like to claim that the first sentence of that verse should be read in part, Father, forgive them not, for they know what they do. 
Yet the Greek sentence in question is correctly translated as it is found in the King James Version, which reads, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Greek grammar proves that the King James translation of the sentence is correct. And I'm the first to criticize the King James where it's wrong. But in this instance, it's not wrong. Because in all of Luke's writing, and we have the entire Gospel of Luke and the entire book of Acts, wherever a verb is accompanied with a negative particle, therefore forming a negative verb, the negative particle precedes the verb which it negates, and it never follows it. This instance is not an exception. That, thinking that, is a perversion of grammar. You can't assess, without a knowledge of Greek, you can't assess any passage in Greek correctly. Without a knowledge of the entire New Testament Greek usage, or at least a basic familiarity with it, you can easily lead yourself down the garden path or be led down the garden path by someone who is packaging a slick idea no better than a street corner huckster. Now concerning this passage at Luke 23, 34, as, it, as I had explained last week and we'll explain again now, and the line, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, in truth, the early, earliest manuscripts are divided, and it is not found in the majority of the earliest manuscripts. Therefore, it is most likely that the passage is an interpolation, especially since the codices Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, which are the two most oldest and most reliable of the great uncles, they are divided on this issue. For that reason, and for the reason that it also doesn't appear in the oldest papyri, P75, which dates to the 3rd century, for that reason, the line is not found in the Christogenia New Testament. Many identity Christians who have not known this have wondered how Christ could forgive his murderers, whom we understand to be Edomite Jews, which is true. However, even the context is obvious that the verse saying, and casting lots, they divided his garments, which does belong in Luke 23:34. That that verse, that statement refers to the Roman soldiers and not at all to the Judeans who brought Christ before Pilate. Therefore, if the statement concerning forgiveness is admitted into the narrative, if we accept it as part of Luke's original writing, it can only refer to the Roman soldiers and not at all to the Judeans. The Judeans knew exactly what they were doing, as even Pilate knew that they wanted Christ executed out of envy, which we see in Matthew 27:18 and Mark 15:19 as the Gospel of John attests 
that they were actually planning his execution, as the other three Gospels attest over and over again that they were threatening to have him killed and wanted to have him killed. And the Roman soldiers were truly ignorant of the entire situation and were only following orders. Christ himself told Pilate, ostensibly, the, well, well in, in reality, the, the leader of the Roman soldiers, he, the Roman governor had military powers and, and exercised authority over the military in, in their provinces. Christ himself told Pilate, you do not have any authority over me if it was not given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin fully indicating that the Edomite Jews alone were primarily responsible for his execution. All of this, I am persuaded, needs to be reinforced because the idea of examining Scripture from the perspective of Christian identity, and Christian identity is certainly found to be true when it is examined honestly, that idea is already ridiculed by the mainstream academics and clergymen everywhere. For that reason, we need sound scholarship, and we need to shed the many fantastic tales that have infiltrated identity circles these past 150 years. And yes, Christian identity is that old. We need to do this because despite all of the covenant deniers, Judeo-Christians at the forefront of that group, despite all of those who despise the plain truth and the evident fulfillment of the promises of Yahweh our God, the truth can and will stand on its own, and it can only do so if it does so without lies. The truth is incompatible with lies. All of this leads me to discuss one more heresy which has been introduced into Christian identity lately. By certain so-called pastors who are not very good scholars and who may even be purposeful, purposeful frauds. Note that I qualify that with the word may. I mean those, and, and I speak about this at this point, in my presentation of Scripture, because we just got to the point where Christ was crucified at the place of the skull, the hill called Calvary in Latin, or Cranion in Greek, or Golgotha in Hebrew. Google F. If the Masoretic Hebrew is right, it's really probably not. I'm referring to those who have espoused the fraudulence of Ron Wyatt. Ron Wyatt made up a fantastic story about the mount called Cranion, which is Golgotha, or the skull. Wyatt claims that the Ark of the Covenant was buried in a cave under Golgotha, and that the blood of Christ was found on the mercy seat of the Ark, where he allegedly found it, although he has absolutely not one shred of physical proof and they don't offer you. The people that support Wyatt's claims only insist that you buy his books. 
Now, there is a segment of those who claim, and, and they make this claim in the fashion of this clown, Ron Wyatt, they claim that the blood of Christ had to spill onto the mercy seat in order for the so-called atonement, and I call it a so-called atonement for reasons that will soon be manifest, in order for the so-called atonement of Christ to be complete, first, those people are confusing the ideas of atonement and propitiation. Atonement and propitiation are not synonyms, even though some dictionaries and some mainstream theologians would assert so. They are not. Christ is our propitiation, propitiation, I should probably say. But nowhere in Scripture is he stated, nowhere in Scripture is it stated that he made our atonement, except in the King James Version in Romans 5.11, where a Greek word, a Greek word which means reconciliation, was mistranslated as atonement in the King James Version. Something which the Greek word cannot mean. A propitiation is a free will forgiveness. It's a free gift, as Paul called it. An atonement implies that we ourselves give compensation for our sins. I will explain that. That is not true if our sins are remitted at the cross. We can't make atonement for our sins if they're remitted at the cross. The confusion of these ideas is long extant in mainstream Christianity. Those who promote the lies of Ron Wyatt also promote the confusion between propitiation and atonement in order to compel people to believe those lies. Here I will quote some notes concerning propitiation and atonement that I posted to Christagenia on this topic on July 24th, 2010, where at that time I said, and I quote, although I've clarified the document in a few places, and this is posted at Christagenia.org. This debate has come up around me several times this week. This is when certain CI pastors decided to embrace the fraudulent Ron Wyatt. And I thought I'd share a few notes on the topic. All of the definitions below are from either the American Heritage College Dictionary, third edition, if the word is English, or Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon, ninth edition, if the word is Greek, or the New College Latin and English Dictionary, if, of course, the word is Latin, if the word is Latin. The definitions are abridged, and some of my own comments are added. The word propitiate, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-E, 
according to the American Heritage College Dictionary, means to conciliate or appease. The word propitiation is the act of propitiating. comes from the Latin word propitious, a disposition of favor. And I would add the comment that one could think in, in the word propitiation, one can think of the, the words pro and pity, a setting forth of pity or mercy. That's the basic meaning of the word. The Greek word translated propitiation in the New Testament is the word helasmus. And helasmus, according to Liddell and Scott, is a means of appeasing, a conciliation. The word to appease in the American Heritage Dictionary is to bring peace or calm, to satisfy or relieve. The word to atone means to make amends or reparations for an injury or wrongdoing, to expiate, not to propitiate, to expiate. There is a difference. The only time we see the word atonement in popular versions of the New Testament is at Romans 5.11. But the Greek word is katalage, and katalage is the common Greek word which means reconciliation. Now, modern versions of the King James, uh, I'm sorry, modern versions of the Greek New Testament, modern translations such as the NAS and the ASV, have recognized this, and they translate that word in Romans 5.11 as reconciliation, as does the Christogonia New Testament. It's an important difference. The word does not ever mean atonement. The word cannot mean atonement. Therefore, the word atonement really does not appear in the New Testament unless one is an advocate, a King James-only advocate of Anglican Church Greek, which is not the Greek of our Redeemer and of his apostles who wrote and spoke Coin Greek. Therefore, the word atonement, the word atonement is not found in the New Testament. Christians confuse propitiation and atonement. However, these are not the same although the devisers of church Greek would like us to think so. Because they strive to eliminate the idea of Christ's propitiation as an act of conciliation between Israel and Yahweh, our God, endeavoring to destroy the racial covenants between Israel and Yahweh. The matter of reconciliation stands in the way of the universalism of the church. Christ is not an atonement. Christ, as Paul puts him, and as it is translated in other places in the King James Version, Christ is our propitiation. And there is a world of difference. We can never make an atonement because we cannot ever pay Yahweh, we cannot ever repay Yahweh for our sins. 
We can't do it. We can't repay Yahweh for our sins, national or personal. Therefore, we need his propitiation. As Paul explained in the same chapter of his epistles, of his epistle to the Romans, earlier in that same paragraph in Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The idea of atonement requires an action on the part of one making an atonement. It's a repayment for something. Where the idea of propitiation requires no such action. And we can't possibly repay Yahweh for our sins. Under the New Covenant, our reconciliation with Yahweh is consciously effected upon our acceptance of the propitiation of Christ. But atonement was not on a cross. We can't repay. That's the meaning of the word. We can't repay for our sins. He effected our propitiation on a cross, whether we are conscious of it or not. He can make a propitiation for us but he cannot make amends for us, paying himself back for our sins on our behalf. What need is God of those things? Our conciliation is achieved by our acceptance of his propitiation. If indeed he accepts us, if we are of the children of Israel and under his covenants in the first place. That is the only way we can make an atonement is by believing him and his word, if you want to call that an atonement, and that's an action on our part. We make an atonement in a way by believing him, accepting his word, accepting his propitiation. And ceasing from our sin. Eventually, all Israel will accept his propitiation. I'm going to explain the difference between atonement and propitiation in simple terms. I borrow your car. I drive it down the road and crash it into a tree. I don't have a dime to my name. I can't make atonement for your car for what I did to it. I can't do it because I can't. I don't have any money to pay you for your car so you can get another car or fix that one. If you forgive me, replace the car on your own, forgive me, tell me never to worry about it, you'll still love me, you'll still be my friend, you made an act of propitiation. That's propitiation. You freely forgave me of my error for crashing your car. And I'll love you all the more, knowing what a wonderful friend you are, that I could do such a horrible thing and you don't let it affect your love for me. That's propitiation. That's an act on your part. You're the owner of the car. I can't possibly pay you back for it. That's propitiation. That's what Christ did for us on the cross. Now, if I borrow your car and I smash it into a wall and I tell you, here, here's $50,000, buy yourself a new car, that's atonement. 
my giving you that money and, and replacing your car, that's atonement. I atoned for that error. That's the difference between propitiation and atonement. But the mainstream Christian world, they confuse the, the, those two words. We should not confuse those two words. That's what they mean according to their dictionary definitions. The idea that the blood had to run down onto the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in order that Christ could make atonement for the sins of the children of Israel, that's ridiculous. That's some kind of cartoon fantasy religion. I don't want any part of it. We all have some Judaized baggage to lose if we are ever going to come to a better understanding of the knowledge of the truth. Like the children of Israel covered their door frames with the blood of the Passover lamb, Christians must allegorically cover themselves with the blood of Christ. And the old Ark of the Covenant has nothing to do with that. Ron Wyatt made up a lot of fantastic stories which are not substantiated and which we do not need in order to demonstrate the basis for our Christian profession. His claims are based upon emotion and not substantiated and not documented with real solid evidence. He is proven to be false, although those proofs would take many pages in order to elucidate the truth of the matters. Clifton M. Heiser has compiled many of those proofs in a series of his papers, which are available on his website. We are much better off without Ron Wyatt. We should leave him to the Seventh-day Adventists. They deserve him. The remnants of Noah's Ark have not been discovered. The Exodus crossing could not have been at the Gulf of Aqaba, which is refuted by history and scripture. And the Ark of the Covenant was not found under Golgotha, nor shall it ever be. Christ did not have 24 chromosomes. He had 46 like the rest of the seed of Abraham, which he took upon himself. None of this fantastic drivel helps our cause, and its promotion damages our credibility badly. Only a paid shill would seek to discredit Christian identity from within by promoting these fantastic falsehoods. We don't need them. We need sound scholarship. We need sound biblical exegesis. We need sound documentable history. That's what we need. That's all we need. The truth will stand on its own. We need, as I said two weeks ago, we need a good bullshit detector. And we have to ostracize the people that peddle that garbage. Thank you for listening to that. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, part 2. Last week we left off our presentation of Luke, 
chapter 23, with verse 34. And in the Christogonian New Testament, following what we believe are the most reliable of the oldest manuscripts, the text of that verse should read in its entirety, and casting his lots, they divided his garments. I'd like to quote Mark 15:24, which states, and they crucify him and part his garments, casting lots for them, for what anyone should take. Likewise, Matthew chapter 27, verses 35 through 36, has it thus. Then crucifying him, they parted his garments, casting lots, and being seated, watched him there. But the King James Version adds to this verse at Matthew 27:35 the following, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. These words referring to Psalm 22:18 began to appear in the Greek manuscripts of Matthew in the 9th century AD. It is evident that they may have been copied from Eusebius, who has that in his edition, or from certain Vulgate or Syriac manuscripts which contain them, where they also appear, and are perhaps originally a commentary note which made its way into the text. However, in John, in chapter 19 of his Gospel, John does acknowledge the fulfillment of these things, where he writes from 1923, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Yahshua, took his garments, and they made four parts, a part, for each, a part for each soldier. And the shirt, now the shirt was seamless, woven all together from the top. Therefore they said to one another, we shouldn't tear it, but we should cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the writing would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. So therefore the soldiers did these things. And those words in John are generally attested in all of the oldest manuscripts. Psalm 22, verses 12 through 18. And we must acknowledge that these words describe poetically both the events which befell David in his own time and at the same time prophecy the things which the Christ would suffer in David's distant future. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me, have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my vows. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my, clung, my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments, my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Verse 35, and the people stood watching, 
And the leaders then mocked him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the anointed son, the chosen of Yahweh. When I presented the Gospel of Matthew here, I forget when, probably in mid-2011, I presented Clifton Emma Heiser's papers on the power of the dog, who we see as the Canaanite peoples of Scripture, and that can pretty much be established. Just like the Gospel writers... Each presented different facets of the scripture. When presenting all four Gospels, it may be neat to present different facets of interpretation. Anybody who listens to these Luke podcasts and is certainly interested in them and wonders why I may have not treated something at length, especially something that Clifton or I have written on in the past, I strongly urge them to go listen to my Matthew or Mark presentations. And I pray, even though I'm sure I'll miss some important things, I'm, I'm positive about it, but I pray I at least hit on, on, on everything that I should by the time I give presentations on all four Gospels, which probably won't be for another year or two at the rate I'm going. In reference to verse 35, I will quote Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on Yahweh that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. The codices Alexandrinus, Washingtonensis, and the majority text upon which the King James Version is, is based says, and they and the leaders mocked him. Where the Codex Beze has only, and they mocked him. The text where it reads, and the leaders then mocked him, so we see that some manuscripts seem to atone for what they thought were deficiencies in the narrative, possibly. That's one possible explanation for the differences. The text follows the 3rd century papyrus P75. The Codex Sinaiticus, except that that Codex wants the word rendered then. And the Codices Vaticanus and Ephraim Siri. The word for son, he is the anointed son, the chosen of Yahweh. The word for son is found in the 3rd century Papyrus P75 and in the Codex Vaticanus. All of the others of the oldest manuscripts want the word, where the end of the verse would be read either he is the anointed one, the chosen of Yahweh, or he is the Christ, the chosen of Yahweh. I think it's important to observe at least several of the differences in the manuscripts. I really, when I present one of these programs, I only present a small percentage of the differences among the manuscripts. However, most of them are immaterial or belong to the Codex Beze, which has more digressions and diversions than any other manuscript. John does not record the mocking of Christ on the cross. 
the accounts supplied by Matthew and Mark are much lengthier. And here I shall, shall read the version from Matthew, from 2739. And those going by blasphemed him, shaking their heads, saying, He destroying the temple and building it in three days, save yourself. If you are a son of God, then you must come down from the cross. Likewise, also, the high priest, mocking, along with the scribes and elders, said, He has saved others. Is he not able to save himself? Is he king of Israel? Let him descend now from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusted in God. He must deliver him if now, now if he wishes. For he said that I am a son of God. The Judeans, and this is the consistency of the gospel, because we can see this attitude being addressed by both Peter and Paul later in, 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 in their missions. And we will discuss that here. The Judeans did not believe that their Messiah could die. And therefore, whether they were Edomite or Israelite Judeans at this point is rather immaterial. The gospel was to be the dividing point between them. We would hope that at least most of the Israelite Judeans eventually accepted it. And the Edomite Judeans, well, that's why we have Jews today, right? The Judeans did not believe that their Messiah could die, and therefore they did not accept Yahshua as Messiah. For that reason, we see these words attributed to Peter in exhortation of the Judeans recorded in Acts chapter 2, and I will read from verse 22. Men, Israelites, he is not addressing the Edomites, hear these words, Yahshua the, Yahshua the Nazorian, or the Nazarene, in the King James, a man appointed for you by Yahweh with powers and wonders and signs which Yahweh had done through him in your midst, even as you yourselves know, he, by the appointed will and foreknowledge of God, was surrendered, who crucifying through lawless hands you have slain. Peter's basically telling them that while the lawless were responsible, the nation went along with the crime and therefore must accept the blame. Whom Yahweh has resurrected, having undone the travails of death, in which manner it was not possible for him to be held by it. And I would interject that if the Creator God cannot transcend his own creation, then we should throw away our Bibles and seek the desires of the flesh, because there is no hope in the Spirit. Verse 25. Indeed, David said for him, I saw Yahweh before my face, continually for he is on my right hand that I am not shaken on account of this my heart is rejoiced and my tongue has exalted and further even my flesh shall rest in hope because you shall not leave my soul behind in Hades nor give over your sanctioned one the anointed one David that referred to David in his time and in the future, 
in the prophetic mode of David's psalms, if you will, it referred to Christ. Nor give over your sanctioned one to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall fill me with gladness with your presence. Men, brothers, I, meaning Peter, speak to you with frankness, to you concerning the patriarch David, because he also has died and is buried, and his tomb is among us unto this day. And yes, the tomb of David was identifiable in the, in, in the first century A.D. And Josephus describes how Herod, how first John Hyrcanus had gone into the tomb and eluded part of it, and later on, I believe it was John Hyrcanus, and later on Herod the Edomite had gone in and looted David's tomb. So it was definitely identifiable in the first century. Now Peter is asserting the words are not true unless they refer to the Messiah rather than to David himself because they knew that David died and was in that tomb. And I continue with my quote from Acts chapter 2 at verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, and one who knows that Yahweh had sworn an oath to him, that one from the fruit of his loins should sit upon his throne, having foreseen, he had spoken concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be left behind in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. In other words, if Christ is not resurrected, David has no hope for life beyond his own flesh. Verse 32. This is Yahshua whom Yahweh resurrected, of whom all of us are witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted with the right hand of Yahweh and having received... The promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father. He has poured forth this, which you also see and hear. And Peter is referring to the Holy Spirit and the ability to speak in tongues, which the men had witnessed, as it is recorded earlier in this chapter. Verse 34. For David had not gone up into the heavens, but he himself says... Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand until I shall place your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore all the house of Israel must know with certainty that Yahweh also has made both his prince in Christ, that Yahshua whom you crucified. Peter's entire response there, Peter's entire discourse there is a response to those Judeans who did not believe that, that, that their Messiah would die. Paul reveals the same obstacle to spreading the gospel among the Judeans and taught that the scripture indeed prophesied these things, just as we just heard from Peter, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 26, where he says, However, obtaining assistance from Yahweh unto this day I have stood bearing testimony to both the small and the great, saying nothing outside of the things which the prophets, which both the prophets and Moses said are going to happen. Whether Christ was to suffer, whether 
First, from a resurrection of the dead is a light going to be declared to both the people and to the nations. So we see in the ministry of the apostles that they sought to overcome the very basis of this scoffing by the leaders, this mocking of Christ on the cross, that they did not believe that their Messiah could die, even though the scripture insists that he had to die. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that again a little later. Of course, Paul was referring to both the remnant Israelite people of Judea, where he said, the people, and to those nations of ancient Israel in dispersion, where he said, and to the nations. And that is what Paul meant, and it can be proven that that is what Paul meant, whether or not his audience was actually conscious of what he, what he was referring to is immaterial. We today are fully conscious of it. Luke 23, verse 36. And they sported with him, and the soldiers coming forth were offering him vinegar and saying, If you are the king of the Judeans, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Judeans. The charge in Matthew reads, this is Yahshua, the king of the Judeans. And in Mark, we're told that the inscription reads only, the king of the Judeans. So neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke agree on a precise wording of the inscription. However, all of them seem to be only paraphrasing it. All of the manuscripts of Matthew present a consistent reading of the passage, which agrees with the rendering that appears in the King James Version. In Mark, the reading of the Codex Beze is identical to that found in Matthew, but all of the other ancient manuscripts agree with the translation found in the King James Version of Mark. However, the manuscripts of Luke are not so consistent as the other Gospels where this passage is concerned. And I mean Luke 23:38, of course. While they vary somewhat with one another, the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Beze, Washingtonensis, and the majority text generally had this verse to read, and there was an inscription written above him, in the letters of the Greeks and Romans and Hebrews. This is the king of the Judeans. The Codex Ephraimi Siri has, and there was an inscription over him written, he is the king of the Judeans. The text of the Christogenian New Testament, in this instance, follows the third century papyrus, P75, and the Codex Vaticanus. We should see a pattern here. I followed those two, those two documents throughout my translation of Luke. I don't think there's a diversion from them. I could be wrong. There may be one or two, but I don't think so. Regardless of which of the manuscripts of Luke we prefer to follow, 
the Apostle John does go into more detail, and all of the ancient manuscripts of John generally agree that he wrote in chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, and I quote, Then Pilate wrote an inscription and set it upon the cross, and it was written, Yahshua the Nazorian, or Nazarene, the king of the Judeans. Therefore many of the Judeans read this inscription because the place where they crucified Yahshua was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, in Roman, and in Greek. John mentions the writing on the inscription at a slightly earlier point in the narrative than the other apostles. And explains that the Judeans contended with Pilate over the wording of the inscription where he goes on to record this exchange in the subsequent verses of John chapter 19, verses 21 and 22, where he says, Then the high priest of the Judeans said to Pilate, Do not write king of the Judeans, but that he said, I am king of the Judeans. And Pilate replied, That which is written is written. Now, Luke may have mentioned the sign here at this point, which is only slightly later than in John's narrative. Or, and he may have done so because he wanted to explain how the soldiers, who may have been fluent in either Greek or Latin, how they knew anything of the reason for the crucifixion. And that's the way the narrative seems to read. About the nature of the Roman soldiers... And I'll give an example from Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, verse 1, we see a reference to a cohort of Roman soldiers who are, and I quote, called Italian. They were called Italian ostensibly because the cohort was made up of soldiers who were from Italy. The Romans commonly assembled cohorts or legions of soldiers from a particular region and then they employed them overseas. They never employed them in their native lands. That was a practice which helped them to maintain their tyranny. It is also a practice which the American tyranny is beginning to employ today. It's also a practice which the Bolsheviks employed against the Russian citizens. They imported mercenaries from China and from Latvia. In his description of the first Herod's funeral, Josephus, in the 17th book of his Antiquities, lists bands or cohorts of soldiers, each made up of Thracians, Germans, and Galatians, who were in attendance at Jerusalem. The soldiers at the crucifixion, while they are called Roman, apparently meaning of the Roman army, were not necessarily Roman by race, but may have been from any of the provinces where Greek or Latin were commonly understood. And that is why I believe Luke mentions the sign on the cross at this point in the narrative to explain how the Roman soldiers actually knew of the charge so that they too could mock Christ, which they did. But if we admit 
the first part of Luke 23, 34, which the Christogenian New Testament omits, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They really didn't know what they were doing. He who delivered you to me, Christ told Pilate, has the greater sin. The Edomite Jew, they were responsible for the crucifixion. Luke 23, 39. Then one of the criminals hanging blasphemed him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, replying and censuring him, said, Do, do you not fear even Yahweh, seeing that you are in the same judgment? And we justly indeed, for we, for we receive worthily for what we have done. But he, meaning Christ, has done nothing improper. And he said, Yahshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, meaning Christ, said to him, the robber, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now Luke alone attests to this exchange between Christ and the criminals condemned alongside of him. Matthew chapter 27 verse 44 says only, and with that same thing, even the robbers who were crucified with him reproached him. Mark has only, and those crucified together with him reproached him. There are various differences among the oldest manuscripts here in Luke, but they all generally record something similar to what is, to what is seen here in these verses. Now, many people... And this is another one of those incredible heresies which has worked its way into Christian identity. Many people want to move that word today in Luke 23, 43, claiming that it should be translated, truly, I, truly today I say to you, comma, you shall be with me in paradise. Those people are fools. And those fools who make this assertion are those who would purport that the spirit of a man is not conscious from the time in which he dies unto the time of the resurrection, in spite of the many scriptures which reveal that the spirit of a man does not die at all. They should at least learn proper Greek before attempting to pervert the gospel of God since their reading is quite contrary to Luke's grammar when it is compared with the many places where similar statements appear. In this passage, Christ clearly states to the man that today you shall be with me in paradise. Truly I say to you, comma, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's the Greek. One's reading of Scripture should not be based upon what, what one believes about the Bible. Quite the contrary. What one believes about the Bible should be based upon a sound reading of Scripture. The word paradisus, Strong's number 3857, which is only transliterated both here and in the King James Version, as paradise. 
That word is actually a Persian word. And according to Liddell and Scott, it was first used in Greek by the historian Xenophon in the 4th century B.C. It is very much like the Hebrew word pardes, P-A-R-D-E-C is the way that's transliterated, Strong's Hebrew number 6508, which in his Hebrew lexicon Strong defined as a park. The Hebrew word pardes is very likely the original source of our English word park. And much of the English language can be demonstrated to have originated with Hebrew. Paradisus, the Greek word borrowed from Persian, we see that the Persian word must have been, been very similar to the Hebrew word pardes. And they were both the languages of Shemitic people. That's just an interesting note of etymology. The Christogenian New Testament, if I wanted to translate the verse and the word, I should have said, today you shall be with me in a park. It just doesn't have the same effect, so I left it at paradise. Verse 44. And it was already about the sixth hour, and darkness came upon the whole land until the ninth hour. Many of the manuscripts here want the word rendered already. The hours were counted from sunrise and measured on sundials. The sundial appears in Scripture at 2 Kings chapter 20. The sixth hour was around noon. If the sunrise was at 6 a.m., of course it probably wasn't. This being the spring, it may have been a little earlier or a little later. And the ninth hour was around 3 p.m. Verse 45. There being an eclipse of the sun, and the curtain of the temple had torn in the middle. The Codex Alexandrinus, the Codex Bazai, the Washingtonensis, and the majority text upon which the King James Version is based want the words describing an eclipse, and they have instead, and the sun was darkened. And the sun was darkened, and the curtain of the temple had torn in the middle. The words which say there being an eclipse of the sun are found in the 3rd century papyrus, P75, and in the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Ephraim Siri. The Codex Beze has the second part of this verse where it says, and the curtain of the temple had torn in the middle after the text of verse 46, rather than in this place here. Luke does not record the words attributed to Christ, which are found at this point in Matthew and Mark, which are interpreted to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Neither does Luke record the centurions having given Christ a sponge full of vinegar to drink, the account of which is found in both Matthew and Mark. 
Neither does Luke record the piercing of Joshua's ribs with the lance, which is found, albeit told in different ways, in both Matthew and John. The Gospel of John does not mention the darkness, the earthquake, or the tearing of the veil, among other things. However, John describes other events, which are not described by the other three Gospels, by these three Gospels, Luke, Matthew, and Mark. John describes events such as the committal of his mother Mary to the Apostle, which the synoptic Gospels do not treat at all. As we have often discussed in our presentations of the Gospels, the Gospel accounts do not conflict with one another. However, they all record different aspects of this great event from different perspectives. And one needs to thoroughly study all four of them in order to gain an understanding of the larger picture. Various commentators have made different proposals in reference to what the tearing of the veil of the temple signifies. Some even use it as an excuse for universalism, which is utterly ridiculous. The epistles of Paul can help us to understand precisely what it means. And I will quote first from Hebrews 6.13. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For Yahweh, in having promised to Abraham since he had by no, by no one greater to swear, swore by himself, saying, Truly, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so having patience, he obtained that promise. For men swear by the greater, and the oath in confirmation to them is an end of all disputation, by which Yahweh is more abundantly desiring to display to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his will, mediated by an oath, that by two immutable facts in which it is impossible for Yahweh to lie, we who are fleeing for refuge would have powerful encouragement to grasp the expectation being prescribed, which we have is both a secure and firm anchor of the soul, and itself entering into that within the veil, where Yahshua entered, a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest in accordance with the order of Melchizedek for the ages. And before I comment on that, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brethren, having liberty into the entrance of the holy places in the blood of Yahshua, by a new and living way through the veil which he has consecrated for us, that is, of his flesh, the veil of his flesh, and the great priest over the household of Yahweh, we should approach with a true heart in certainty of faith, having purified the hearts from a wicked conscience and having washed the body in pure water. We should hold fast the profession of the expectation without wavering, for he making the promises trustworthy. In the Old Covenant, the veil concealed the inner sanctum of the temple which represented the abode of Yahweh, and only the high priest could enter beyond it 
at times before determined. Here in Hebrews, we learn that the veil represented the flesh. And beyond the veil is the spiritual realm in which Yahweh God truly abides. Israel was alienated from God because they violated the laws of the old covenant which they had once agreed to. God, having come in the flesh as a man, destroyed the veil so that the children of Israel would no longer have any barriers in accessing him, being reconciled to him. Paul is using the veil as an analogy. All throughout the opening chapters of the epistle to the Romans, Paul is explaining the relationship of Israel to Yahweh God and to the laws of God. In Romans chapter 7, Paul explains the basis for Israel's reconciliation to Yahweh their God. And I quote, Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law, that the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. For a woman, meaning Israel, the allegorical wife of Yahweh, for a woman married to a living husband is bound by law. But if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Therefore, Yahweh God chose to die, fulfilling the law, so that the children of Israel would not have to be judged by the law under which they would all be condemned and the promises to the fathers would fail. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ. For you to be found with another who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. Christ died for the benefit of all Israel, so that all Israel may live. And Paul says in verse 5, Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences, the occurrences of sin which were through the law operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law. Yahweh fulfilled the law by dying on our behalf. Being put to death in that which we were held, we must recognize his sacrifice on our behalf. So that we are bound in newness of spirit and not oldness of letter. We're still bound to the law. We're bound to the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. We're not going to be judged by the law. We're judged by grace. We're given mercy. We receive the propitiation. Therefore, Paul also wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 22, For he is our peace, who has made both one, meaning remnant Israel and cast off Israel, which is evident in verses 11 through 13, and in the one-stick prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37. And having broke down the middle wall of the enclosure, the hostility in his flesh, represented by the veil of the temple. 
having annulled the law of commandments and ordinances, which are the judgments and the rituals of the law which temporarily satisfied transgression, in order that he would establish the two within himself, with himself, into one new man, the flesh and the spirit, making peace, and again reconcile both in one body of Yahweh through the cross, having slain that hostility by it. So the tearing of the veil signifies the reconciliation between Yahweh and cast off Israel. And having come, he announced a good message. Peace to you who are far away and peace to those near. Because of him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So therefore, you are no longer strangers and sojourners. They're no longer cast off Israel. But fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of Yahweh, the prodigal sons, being built upon the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets, which only included salvation for Israel, which only included reconciliation and redemption for Israel, the literal genetic children of Israel, Yahshua Christ being the cornerstone himself, in whom the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple with the prince, which you also are being built together into an abode of Yahweh in spirit. That's the significance of the tearing of the veil. Verse 46. And crying with a great voice, Yahshua said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And saying this, he expired. The spirit does not die. Rather, the body dies when the spirit departs from it. Verse 47. Then the centurion, seeing that which happened, extolled Yahweh, saying, This man really was righteous. Mark 15.39 relates thus, And seeing it, the centurion who stood nearby from opposite him, that thusly he expired, said, this, Truly this man was a son of God. And Matthew agrees, but has the centurion and those with him making the exclamation, it's a, um, <clears throat> it's evident that the man, the centurion, said both things. Matthew and Mark recorded one, and Luke recorded another. Verse 48. And all the crowds which stood together at that spectacle, observing the things which happened, smiting their breasts, returned. Then all those acquainted with him stood at a distance, and the women who followed him from Galilee to watch these things. These circumstances are fully corroborated by both Matthew and Mark. However, Mark mentions a couple of other women by name, where Matthew simply says there were many women who had been in the company of Christ since his departure from Galilee. So there were probably other women who were not named. Verse 50, and behold, a man named Joseph, a council member, being also a good and righteous man, 
Now, the common word, the common Greek word boulete, I'm sorry, boulutes. Boulutes here is a council member, noting that the phrase is not from any form of soon Edrian or Sanhedrin. All four Gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea, who is only mentioned in Scripture in connection with the burial of Christ. And there are other fantastic stories about Joseph and Mary being put in a boat with no oars and washing up on the shores of Gaul and from there passing through to Ireland. Those stories originated in British Israel writers at least 100 years ago. And those stories have absolutely no substantiation before about the 9th century when they started appearing in in, in, in the fanciful writings of medieval monks at Glastonbury. I prefer to reject those stories also without ancient contemporary substantiation for various reasons. Yes, the gospel did get to Ireland and England at a very early time. It wasn't necessarily brought by Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 51, he was not in agreement with their counsel and action. That's a parenthetical statement, and it goes on to explain that he was from Harimathea, a city of the Judeans, who awaited the kingdom of Yahweh. He, going before Pilate, requested the body of Yahshua, and taking it down, he wrapped it in linen and set him in a tomb hewn in stone, where there was never anyone laid. And it was the day of preparation, and Sabbath was beginning. The Sabbath being the high Sabbath, the Passover, as we learn from the other Gospels. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, goes into a little deeper account of Joseph of Arimathea and his burial of Christ, where it says, Then after these things, Joseph from Harimathea, being a student of Yahshua, but secretly on account of fear of the Judeans, asked Pilate that he may take the body of Yahshua, and Pilate permitted it. Therefore he came and took his body. Then Nicodemus also came, he having come at first to him at night, for which we can see John chapter 3 bearing a mixture of ointment and aloe, about a hundred pounds. Therefore they took the body of Yahshua and they bound it in linen cloths with the perfumes, just as it was a custom with the Judeans to bury. Now there was in the place where he was crucified a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one as yet was buried. So there, on account of the preparation day of the Judeans, because the tomb was near, they had laid Yahshua. The passage in the law found in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23, explained why Christ had to be buried immediately. And therefore, and we see from the testimony concerning the darkening of the sun or the eclipse of the sun, 
that it was at least 3 p.m. when he died, right? It was after 3 p.m., so it was getting late in the day. And therefore, because this was also the preparation day for a feast, a nearby tomb was expedient. And this is why. Deuteronomy 21:22. And if a man hath committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any ways bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. God made himself a curse on our behalf, as Paul says later. And cursed is he who hangs upon a tree, as Paul says later. Now we know where he gets those quotes. That thy land not be defiled, which Yahweh thy God gives thee for an inheritance. So we see it was a command of the law that he be buried that day. And there were only a couple of hours left, so he surely couldn't be transported to any family tomb in Nazareth or anywhere else, for that matter. A nearby tomb was expedient. We see that Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who also had ready access to the governor. Not just anybody could walk up to the governor of the province, just like today there were protocols and who also had a right to claim the deceased body of Christ. While there must have been legitimate reasons for his being in a position to do these things, and there are many conjectures concerning these things in British Israel and other Christian identity writings, there are no early documents which can offer explanations. There are no contemporary documents that I've seen to this date which offer explanations for why, precisely why Joseph of Arimathea had access to all of these things and, and had a right to claim the body of Christ. And there are also many later fables which have been devised which Christian identity adherents should be careful of. However, Joseph must have been related to Christ in some manner, having a, had a right to claim his body. Joseph is called an honorable counselor by Mark and a council member by Luke, where he must have meant that he was one of the members of the Sanhedrin, since Luke also tells us that he was not in agreement with their counsel and action concerning the plot against Christ. Luke also tells us that Joseph awaited the kingdom of Yahweh, so we see he was a just man. In John chapter 19, we learn that Joseph was a student of Yahshua secretly on account of the fear of the Judeans, an understanding of politics in first century Judea would lead one to believe that Joseph of Arimathea must have also been a Pharisee but not all the Pharisees were bad. A lot of identity Christians hear the word Pharisee in the first century context, and they, it automatically triggers some canned response that the Pharisee was evil. That's not so. Paul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. That didn't make him evil. It simply meant that he was engaged in politics 
And to be engaged in politics in first century Judea, one had to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee. And the Sadducees, they were evil. Christ never engaged. Christ never engaged the Sadducees in his ministry. It is recorded that the Sadducees accosted him to try to entrap him, but he never engaged the Sadducees. The Sadducees were evil. And the high priest at this time, it can be proven from Acts chapter 5, they were Sadducees. They were not Pharisees. The Sadducees were a minority sect, but they were also the sect of the wealthy, according to Josephus. And for that reason, they had a lot of influence. And they were evil. They rejected all things spiritual. They rejected the prescience of God. That They rejected many, many things which are Christian in their foundations. The Sadducees were, were, were like today's humanist liberals. Hillary Clinton would be a good example of a Sadducee. Any of the, um, the humanist deniers of God who are also generally ultra-liberals verging on Bolshevism, they were the Sadducees of the first century. The Pharisees were not all bad. A lot of them were good men. Christ ate and dined with them, hoping, well, well hoping, I mean, the prescience of God in the presence of God, he was demonstrating by dining with them that they had the capacity to be converted and to repent and to be Christians, or he wouldn't have dined with them. So the Pharisees weren't necessarily evil. Yes, they were legalists, but they weren't necessarily evil people. And I've been confronted several times by clowns who told, oh, they were Pharisees, they had to be Jews. Well, they were Judeans, yeah, but they didn't have to be Jews. The Jews of today, we should associate with the Edomites and Canaanites of the, of, of the time of Christ. That's who the New Testament associates them with. Romans 9, Revelation 2, 9, Revelation 3, 9, so forth and so on. The Pharisees weren't necessarily evil. And Nicodemus is described as being a good, just, honorable, righteous man by the apostles. He had to be a Pharisee. Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, I'm sorry. And Nicodemus here is described by John as having assisted Joseph of Arimathea in the burial of Christ. And he couldn't have been a bad guy either. In John chapter 19, we learn that Joseph was a student of Yahshua secretly on account of fear of the Judeans. And that Nicodemus, a Pharisee, would also come to Yahshua secretly, an event which we see described in John chapter 3, had helped him care for the body of Christ and place it in his tomb. Joseph's actions here are often seen as a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.9, where it says... And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, Joseph being a wealthy man, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. I'm sure that 
Judea in the first century, Jerusalem in the first century was probably a lot like any major city today. Where a cemetery right at the gates of the city, a tomb would have probably been quite expensive. Joseph could afford it because he was a wealthy man. Then the women following after, who were they who came with him from Galilee, saw the tomb and how his body was set. And returning, they prepared herbs and ointments. Then indeed they rested on a Sabbath according to the commandment. The last verses of Luke chapter 23. There has been at least one similar tomb uncovered by archaeologists in the garden in Jerusalem. I discussed this at length, I think, in the Mark presentation. Now, some imagine that that tomb may be the very tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Somehow I doubt it, but it doesn't really matter. It has become quite a tourist attraction. The tomb is actually in a part of a wall built in onto the side of a hill or an embankment with a doorway opening to a hollow in the hill. A large rounded stone was at one time placed into a groove in front of the archway, which could be rolled out of the way when necessary. Among the Hebrews in ancient times, bodies of dead family members were laid out in the family tomb until all of the flesh decayed from their bones. Once that process was complete, the bones were removed and placed into an ossuary. An ossuary was a box made out of either stone or chalk or wood, depending on the family budget. And the box was made to hold the bones of the dead. Poor families dug deep holes in the ground for the same purpose. The moving of the bones would make room for the next family member who passed to be laid out in the tomb. Of course, we're told that this tomb in which Christ was laid out had not yet been used. Here we will end our presentation of Luke chapter 23. I had intended, and I stated so last week, but... Well, when I prepared my notes for this program tonight, I found that it was impossible. I had intended to spend some time on a chronology of the last week of Christ, and for now, that will have to wait. I will be back here next week with a gentleman known to us as Warrior Priest, who has done many excellent videos in support of our common cause. In two weeks, I will be here, Yahweh willing, with a presentation of Luke chapter 24. Tonight, I'm sorry, tomorrow night, I will be here with Sword Brethren, presenting part six of our series against the Paul Bashers. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. God bless you all. Good night. <laughs> I don't know you
I'm not afraid.